Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm Emily. And I'm Tom. And together we're Space 3D. In this Space 3D podcast, we chat with Charles Dorn from the University of Cincinnati, who has had a long collaboration with various aspects of space healthcare and NASA. Chuck was actually our first interview conducted this season, but we decided to air him after our interviews focusing specifically on medical capabilities with Skylab, Space Station Freedom, and later Low Earth Orbit Human Platforms, since it turned out that Chuck's wide-ranging interview was a great summary of topics discussed so far this season on Space 3D. So let's listen in on our interview with Chuck Dorn. We have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Dr. Charles Dorn, who is a professor at the University of Cincinnati, and he also has the special distinction of being a special assistant to the chief medical officer at NASA, and I'm going to let Chuck actually give a little bit more uh, about his background before we uh, start asking him some questions. Uh, thank you, Eleanor. I, you know, it's interesting. Someone asked me a number of years ago how I got into the role that I, I'm in because it's it is somewhat convoluted because I didn't start out. Uh, I mean, I started out with a very keen interest in uh, human spaceflight at NASA. Even when I was a little boy, we, my parents took us to the Kennedy Space Center and that's when you could actually go into the VAB and see the Saturn V rocket. I mean, you couldn't touch it, but you could stand pretty close to it. Now you can't get anywhere near uh, those uh, launch pads uh, as a tourist just by bus. And so I actually had a very keen interest very early on. I had an interest in going to medical school, but I, I, I never went to medical school. But I did get involved in the uh, medical facility, uh, development of the medical facility down at the Johnson Space Center in 1990. Uh, at, a, at the contractor at the time it was Krug, Krug Life Sciences. And over the next uh, couple of decades, I got really good at writing and I got, got involved and worked at headquarters for a, a long time uh, as a contractor and as a detailee from a, a university, Wright State University at the time, and worked a lot with uh, the various medical officers um, over that period of time, Dr. Nikogosian, Dr. Rich Williams, and now Dr. J.D. Polk, and looking at NASA's role in telemedicine, NASA's role in developing healthcare and remote systems, writing textbooks. We just finished a, a book on human systems integration, uh, where the uh, that dialogue between the engineer, the, the life scientist, and the the space medicine doctor, they interact in, a, in, in a sort of like a Rosetta Stone. So that kind of gives you the idea of the overlap and where problems can arise in design and protecting humans in space. Well, I know that you also um, had some history with regards to space station freedom, and I'm not sure how many people know even about space station freedom. That was the first iteration of our plans in the in the U.S. for um, a permanent platform in in low Earth orbit. But one of the things that um, we're particularly interested in discussing today are some of the plans around the medical facility or the health maintenance facility that was being planned for Space Station Freedom. And we know that you have some uh, some historical perspectives on that that uh, we wanted to uh, ask you about today. Well, thank you. I, I think the actual concept of a space station 
perhaps goes back even into the 1950s with Warner von Braun and his ideas of not only heavy lift uh, launch vehicles like the Saturn V rocket, space planes like the space shuttle eventually came out, but also uh, the development of a space station. And, and there have been different designs over the years, but it really came to fruition, I think, uh, under President Reagan. And he initiated the program uh, with NASA to develop a, um, a space station freedom is what they called it. And in the, night, in the middle of 1980s, probably 1985, 1986 time period, uh, Dr. Jim Logan, who was um, working at the Johnson Space Center at the time, was responsible for sort of developing and designing this rather large and comprehensive medical facility, which takes some of its background from what we did in Skylab, and also takes some of what was done for a program called Emblems, and I can't remember exactly what the uh, the uh, Emblem stands for, the, it's Integrated Biomedical Measurement System. It was tested in Arizona, it's, in, it's what's called StarPak as a program where they developed a telemedicine system, and they were looking at how you could provide comprehensive medical care on a space station. And so if you think about trying to deliver health care in a remote environment, uh, imagine going on vacation and, you know, you, you, it's a family of four and you have to pack in the back of your Ford Explorer or your, I guess maybe not a Ford Explorer, but I guess what I have, but, you know, a, a Chevy, a Nissan, any kind of, you know, SUV. And you have to put uh, enough baggage in that car to last you for a, a, a two-week vacation. Uh, you have a cooler for food, snacks, you have a first aid kit. And, you know, and it's overloaded, so you pack stuff on the top, right? So now you're, you're, you're driving down the road with this overtaxed vehicle, and it has all this stuff on it, some of which, after a two-week vacation, you find you never used. I mean, that's personal experience because we took the camping stuff all the way to California from Ohio and never used it. So, so But the point is, is that you have a limited space. So when the space station... Freedom was being designed. The design is a little; di- it's a lot different than what we have now. And International Space Station, uh, it was more of a racetrack where you had uh, modules that were connected, so you could—they call it a racetrack where you could kind of go from module to module in a kind of a round uh, system. And there was a lot of room, but you have to weigh that against what else has to go in the vehicle in this platform. So you have. Uh, what the human needs, so living living quarters, a place to sleep, a place for hygiene, you know, a toilet, those kinds of things, um, a place to fix food and a place to gather, perhaps at a dining table. But you also need place to do research because it's not just a vehicle that, you know, you sit out and look out the window. There's a lot of research that needs to be done and it, it has been done. Uh, and there's also the maintenance, keeping keeping things up and running, doing the EVAs and preparing for the EVAs and doing training. Um, and then the downtime of just sitting around and, and, and doing newscasts or you know, reading a book or maybe even watching the next uh, Star Wars movie. I don't know. There's always that. You know, you have to have some downtime because you can't work 24-7. There has to be some downtime. So part of the rationale for uh, developing a system is is that you want to make sure you have enough uh, of a healthcare system to, to address the, the needs that you might face in a mission uh, that's long duration. If it's short duration and you're in close proximity to the Earth, you can come home. I mean, you don't, if you had to come home, 
But if you're on the way to moon or Mars, you know, so you can't just turn around and come back. So, so you have to be prepared for the kinds of things that might occur during a mission. Now, when, when Space Station Freedom was being planned, do you um, have any recollection on what the planned mission durations were going to be and um, expected crew size? I'm curious about that and how that compares to what's, you know, currently being done with the International Space Station. If I recall, the mission durations were, you know, measured in months. I don't know if it was three or four months, six months, but it was certainly measured in months, not just days uh, or weeks, like in the space shuttle program. Uh, and, and the crew complement would probably be uh, six or more. But remember, if you have, like on the current uh, space station, you have, you can't have more than six crew members unless you have three vehicles to come home. So when the space shuttle docked, you have the three Soyuz capsules, and then you have, um, well, at the time it was the space shuttle, so you could put five or six, seven people in there, and then the other six could stay. I think at one point, 2010, I think it was, there were like 12 people on station. There's a picture of all those people, um, kind of like a big round circle. They all look like they're having a great great amount of time, but you, al- you always have to have the complement of people on station has to match the ability to bring people home. In, in turning our attention to the human um, medical facility itself, now I've read a couple of different things, and I'm wondering if you might be able to clarify for me. My understanding is that there was a kind of two components, this sort of critical care inpatient part of the facility and then a non-critical outpatient component, and that some of the planning around that was that capacity for someone who needed critical medical treatment would be for up to 45 days because that may be the amount of time it would take to actually have crew rescue at the time from the shuttle. Um, and I just wanted to verify the the timelines around that. Um, and then also, I think that was maybe for one to two, the capacity would be for one to two crew members that would be having a critical medical issue. The outpatient non-critical capacity maybe. Uh, up to six astronauts, again, for 45 days. I just wanted to get a feeling, were the components of, of the uh, health maintenance facility? I mean, my understanding is there were kind of three major buckets of areas, preventive. Well, preventive, I mean, that presumably would be on the ground prior to flight, but then diagnostic capability and therapeutic medical capabilities, and I believe exercise countermeasures as well. Just kind of curious about what what was all laid out in that in the original plans uh, for the uh, HMF? Well, there. Well, first of all, HMF was part of an overall system called the crew healthcare system. So there were there were three components to that. One was uh, the healthcare facility, one was exercise countermeasures, and the third one is um, environmental monitoring, environmental health. In the Space Station Freedom, there were a number of different things that would allow us to do basic medical care. So you have first aid, you had dental, uh, you had minor surgical capabilities. You had a, a, a clinical chemistry analyzer for doing blood work. Uh, and, and by the way, that, that hardware in 1990, 1991 or so was being developed, uh, I think it was by Kodak, but it was about the size of two VCRs, hmm. if you remember what a VCR is, right? Yeah. Today, same thing, the size of an iPhone. Yeah. So if you think about it, I mean, so that's why we're able to do a lot more today than we were. Even the SOMS kit and the space shuttle um, kits are actually much more comprehensive today 
because the instrumentation is different and you know sort of based on experience looking back at skylab they had all these different things they had a minor surgical capability so we're going to have surgery we're going to have a crew medical restraint system that you're going to be able to attach the patient to the rack so you can do a surgical procedure you can be able to look in their eye and do uh, eye examinations you're going to be able to do dental uh, you have to have a, a way of cleaning up a, a hazardous spill and, and making sure that there's nothing in the eye uh, or you know if you or it happened to inhale um, some burning materials like on mirror there was a fire so there so it was a very comprehensive you could do uh, take blood and you could do um, uh, microbiology uh, of not only the the human system but also the human body but also the surfaces you could monitor the air what was going on in, in, in the air as far as you know health wise of the loss of pressure so it, you know it had a lot of different capabilities if you think of a like a crush injury for instance uh, you know you're moving something from one module to another they uh, it obviously doesn't weigh anything but you could still get your hand caught between that and a hard place and get a crush injury or you can get something in your eye. Uh, you could lacerate yourself while you're doing some kind of experiment. You could lacerate your finger or something. So you have to be able to address those kinds of injuries. So one of the things in the Space Station Freedom Project was the sterile water for injection. And there was a, uh, some development of some technology, and it flew on, I think, on SLJ, which was Space Lab Japan STS-49. I think that's the flight number, where they actually evaluated this in, in, in microgravity during a space flight, and it was to basically take uh, wa sterile water or water, potable water, from the station and make it sterile for injection. So you would have a, a, a powdered formula, a material, in, in, already in the bag. The bag would be empty, and you would uh, fill the bag with this sterile water, and you would make the IV bags. The, the biggest challenge, I think, in, in human space flight is the, the up mass of material. You've got the crew. You got their food and water, you got their experiments, and you got resupplies. So on the space station Freedom, there was a system that allowed you to make the, that material. So you have both uh, minor injuries. So you have basic first aid. So you know somebody cuts their finger, they have a headache, they have upset stomach. You know there's medication in the, in the kits, and and we've learned a lot since the uh, Mercury program on the and medical uh, capabilities got better and better and, and more comprehensive. Uh, but always with the idea in mind that you could come back to the Earth because you look out the window and there's the Earth. The space shuttle could come, you know, you just don't say, I'm going home right now and I'm going to call 911, I'll be home in a half hour. No, I mean, there's a lot of planning because now if you have to leave the space station today, you're landing in Kazakhstan. In the next 18 to 24 months, you might come back uh, on a the uh, SpaceX vehicle or you might come uh, back on the Boeing Starliner or you might be come back I don't think Orion's going to dock with the station. I think it can, but I don't think it's going to do that. You'd have to be coming back on one of those, and they might land in the ocean, or land on a barge, or land on the ground, you know, on the land somewhere. So you have to be able to be prepared to address the the, the clinical need the best you can with contact with the with the ground through telemedicine or te uh, you know a telecommunication link, and you have to be able to get back to definitive care within 24 hours. So if if somebody is on the way to the moon and you're three days away, you can't come back, you can't just turn around, come back and take them to the hospital. So you have to be able to design a system that allows you to take care of that uh, activity you know, when it happened on the space station. Taking Skylab aside, which did have some longer duration exposure 
the small number of crews. The Space Station Freedom was going to be a more extended platform to get to allow the U.S. to have more extended um, exposure to long-duration flight. Is, is that correct? Now, the interesting thing, the United States approach to space flight from, from, the, day, from the very first day, from the very beginning of, of NASA, was by the end of the decade and bring, bring the people back safely. Whereas the Russians were trying to do the same thing, but they didn't, they didn't get to that point. So they focused their energy on long-duration space station-type Salyut 7, the Mir, uh, all the kinds of different spacecraft that they built where people could stay for long periods of time. Where NASA, we were on short-duration missions of 10, 14, 16 days on a shuttle. And now, of course, as you pointed out earlier, Eleanor uh, Scott Kelly living on space station for nearly a year, and Peggy Whitson, of course, just returning after a very long duration as well. So, so the Russians had a tremendous amount of experience of long duration. We had a very, uh, very rich history of short duration. So, we by working together, we learned a tremendous amount of what we should and shouldn't be able to do. In thinking about what's possible for medical interventions in space. Do you have any comments on whether surgery in space is possible? Was this ever even considered by NASA? So to do surgery in space, you have to be able to, because remember, if you push on something, you, you, you're actually pushing yourself away. So you have to have a way of restraining the patient and restraining you. You have to have a way of restraining the equipment and restraining uh, the, the volume of, of air over the uh, operative site. Because right? when you do an operation in an operating room, it has to be sterile. I mean, the air around it is not necessarily sterile. I mean, it's pretty clean because it's in a clean room or a near-clean room. But people wear masks. They wear gloves. To, to every, all the instruments are sterilized. But in space, blood would float. So we did a lot of, a lot of experiments on the uh, NASA's KC-135 and DC-9 uh, parabolic uh, air, air, aircraft to look at and testing some of these systems. So it's not just the ability to do surgery. It's the, all the systems that support surgery. You have to entrain the air above the operative field. You have to, to have suction. You have to have data management. You have to have uh, ways of getting rid of, of trash um, from a surgical procedure. So it's not just the system. There are a lot of subsystems that support that. I've, I've read years ago, I think it was a Michael Collins book, talking about Mars. And he had placed in there that preparation for astronauts may include things such as a prophylactic appendectomy or having all your teeth pulled um, to avoid, you know, pretty high morbidity things that if they happen could be mission limiting. And I'm curious to get your thoughts about that or if there have been any discussions about that for, for the expedition planning, you know, that's going on now. Well, well, if you think of dental, uh, there, there, there have been some people that have had some dental issues uh, pre-flight. Uh, sometimes if a cavity is not filled properly, there may be an air pocket in there, which is not a big deal on the ground. But when you're in space, that air pocket may expand. Right. And now you have a terrible, terrible mouth problem. Uh, so the, in, the, in the health maintenance facility for Freedom, there was a dental um, capability. For extract, I think you could even extract a tooth. So on the way to, to, to uh, Mars, you're going to have to have a much more comprehensive kit. But keeping in mind that the kits that we're going to take and the systems that we're going to take are either in development or, in my opinion, haven't been invented yet. Uh, but we don't want to have somebody, you know, on that space flight 
you know, it's, it's five months out from Earth and, uh, you know, 17 million miles from here and going, you know, I have to have, a, I have, to have my gallbladder taken out. <laughs> and we don't have any system to do that. So, so you, you know, you got to think about what, what's the risk of this person having gallstones or kidney stones or back problems or cardiac problems. Question regarding personnel. Was it anticipated that a physician would be flying on, on Space Station Freedom? I know that's not necessarily the case today, and it wasn't necessarily the case with shuttle, but I was curious about what the planning was at, at the time for, for Space Station Freedom. I, I think, uh, I mean, it's always been the desire to have a physician. It's not a requirement right now. That, that doesn't mean it won't be a requirement in the future. I mean, the jury's still out on that. But I, it was interesting. I, I saw Mike Barrett last week. Uh, Mike has flown both on shuttle and on the station. And he, he told me that on one of his missions, I don't remember which one it was, he was on the same mission as Dave Wolf. And Dave Wolf also is a physician. So the two physicians, uh, they looked at things in a different They each looked at it things differently. So it would be interesting if if you had to have a requirement and they uh, on the way you know on the space current space station or in the space station freedom, the question would come up is okay is the is the physician or the chief medical officer or crew medical officer excuse me on the mission a trauma surgeon, an internal medicine doctor, a family medicine doctor, surgeon, OBGYN, pathologist. So you, you begin to think, well, what, le- what level of physician should it be? And if it was a physician and they are still an astronaut, they've been an astronaut for 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, whatever it might be. And so they're probably not as active as the physicians that are right in my office next door in mine. Mm-hmm. So, so the question, of course, is what, what's the rationale when, when in low Earth orbit if you have a physician and the physician has to have other responsibilities there's a very um, even today. There's a there's an amazing training program that the crew goes through. There's there someone's assigned as uh, is a is a crew medical officer and as a deputy crew medical officer. That person's responsible for responding if a crew member needs medical attention. That each crew member has their flight surgeon on the ground that they talk with, and a lot of those physicians we were with them all last week, and, and they have a really robust program. Uh, that allows them to, to do private medical conferences and talk with a crew member uh, when when through mission control. Um, if the crew member needs to speak with the flight surgeon, then no one else is on the no one's on the open mic, uh, open loop. Uh, even the the, the the flight controllers um, go to mute so they can't hear what's going on. So they, they, we're really serious about the privacy of medical records. So I don't. I mean, in space station freedom, I don't recall that there was a lot of discussion about the need for. Uh, a, a physician, but then that means that the in the acceptance of people who apply and get accepted as astronauts, then you have to have a certain number that that for physicians, which would maybe limit other people the opportunity to fly, uh, or it may may limit the um, capability of that person on orbit if they're all they're only trained to be a physician because they're going to be doing other things. They maybe have to clean the. The, the filters they may have to uh, do EVA. Bernard Harris, as an example, the first African American physician to do an EVA back in 1996 or 1997, uh, he didn't. I mean, he trained how to do the EVA, but he was a medical doctor. Uh, and so, you know, that person, whoever he or she is, could be a physician, could be a PhD geologist, uh, 
and he or she may be the chief, the, uh, the crew medical officer on that mission. Now, going to Mars, it's going to be a little different because you're going to need to have comprehensive training on a variety of different things. You know, you, and you're going to have to have systems that allow you to continue training while you're on your way. If you train on how to be a crew medical officer six months before the flight, and now you're two years into the Mars mission, and you don't, you, you got to. There has to be a way to to do refresher training, and, and there's been research done in, in that, a lot of training and so forth, and modules being developed and so forth. Let me turn our attention to medical emergencies and contingencies, because what I'm thinking is if you have to evacuate a crew member from, from station or anything that's in low Earth orbit even, what discussions have, have taken place even back then in the Space Station Freedom Days and Moving forward to today, that um, you know, if you have someone, let's say, let's say they're intubated, you know, I, I just am like thinking, how in the world can they reasonably fit in, let's say, a Soyuz capsule and undertake fairly high G exposure and and survive? I'm just kind of curious about some of the thought process around what may or may not be possible in bringing a, an ill, a seriously ill crew member back. Well, in the there's a, I use a, when I give a lecture, I, I always show a picture of me standing next to a Soyuz. And, um, and there are astronauts that are a little taller than I am, but, but also a lot thinner. And so three, three people fit into a Soyuz. And that's the only way to get back from the space station today. Uh, during Space Station Freedom Days, there was a crew return vehicle that had been developed. It was sort of like, I mean, perhaps a smaller version of the, um, Orion capsule, uh, where it could, you could bring people back. Um, but, you know, you, the, the actual coming back into the Earth's atmosphere, there's forces of on the X, Y, and Z um, axes that, that can affect your body. Uh, and so, I think, and I use an example, on the, on the Apollo rocket, or any rocket for that matter, even the Russian rockets, people are laying sort of on their back. So when they launch, the G-forces, are you try to make them as minimal as possible. With the space shuttle, you came back, you were, you're basically sitting upright, like in a seat, right? You're facing the window or facing the mid-deck. And so the G-forces were different because the profile of landing was different, right? But in a SpaceX or uh, the Orion or, the, or a Boeing Starliner, they're going to come back much like the capsules did, like the, the Soyuz does, much like the Apollo, come back, parachute, they, they, uh, they hit the ground and they're laying somewhat on their back. And so if you look at the chair in the uh, Soyuz, it's, you're basically sitting sort of like, I, I, I call it a fetal position, but it's not. It's basically like you're sitting on the couch, maybe with your knees or up closer to your chest with your feet around the, maybe the coffee table and you're just watching a really good movie. And so you, you're sitting sort of like that. You're not, you're not laying out. But if, if you're in an emergency situation, like if somebody calls 911, they get there, they're going to put a board under your head to, to the bottom of your spine, right right where your butt is, right, your, your rear end. And they're going to keep that stable because they don't know what happened. They, you, they know if you fell, you're in a car accident, whatever it is, they're going to stabilize that. And then they may intubate you, they may not, but they may put an IV in, they may not. Well, think about all these things in a, in a, in a, in a spacecraft that has no volume whatsoever for you to lay down. And then the impact coming back. Now, on the space shuttle, they actually tried a couple of different experiments. They did some testing of how you could have a patient lying flat, coming back, you know, in a, in a, in a basically in an airplane kind of mode. And because otherwise, you're not going to be able to transport a patient in that condition. 
because it becomes very that doesn't mean it can't happen or they won't come up with um, another approach. It's just that it's it's going to be different than what we traditionally think about, you know, getting in the back of an ambulance. We hope you enjoyed this Space 3D interview with Chuck Dorn. Tune in for future podcasts coming soon. For Space 3D, this is Eleanor Rangers.